Welcome to the Recover Everything podcast, where we have honest discussions about everything in recovery and mental health. Here are your hosts, Christopher West and Chelsea Mooney. Enjoy. There's 23 million people struggling with addiction. Whatever your answer is. Lift the shame and stigma of addiction. Don't choose anything that will jeopardize yourself. Look, you can face this, even though you think you can't, you can. So find your own recovery story, own it, embrace it, work through it. Each and every one of us matters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Recover Everything podcast. I'm your host, Chris West. With me, as always, is Chelsea Mooney. Hello, beautiful people. And our guest today is Robert Ashford. Uh, he is a hey guys. Hello. He is a recovery scientist who is currently working on his PhD at the University of Pennsylvania, correct? Uh, I did my master's at UPenn and still work at the Treatment Research Center. My PhD is actually at the University of the Sciences, which is about a block away um, in Philly. Oh, cool. You do uh, a lot of stuff. You have a lot of um, credentials that I didn't get to. It's, it's true. I think... Uh, and the most important one is, is definitely my own identity as a person in recovery. Um, you know, the credentials are just a, a nice cherry on top, uh, as it were. But um, you know, I've afforded the opportunity to do a lot of different cool things in both around the country and in Texas, where I'm from, and, and here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where my wife um, and I live now. That's so awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show with us. You know, as Chris mentioned, you are a busy man and you have so much that you offer to the world. So thank you for taking the time with us today and talking to us a little bit about, you know, what you do and who you are and what your contributions to the world are. So I kind of want to get into a little bit. um, I think it's so cool that you're a recovery scientist. Um, but what is the actual science of recovery? Sure. Yeah, I think it is, you know, of all the things we could be or the titles that we have, whether you work in the you know, behavioral health or uh, more community-based recovery field, like the idea of being a recovery scientist, uh, I agree. I think it's the coolest absolute thing and the coolest title ever. Um, but we get that question a lot, right? You know, what is a recovery scientist? Um, and I think a lot of people even ask the questions of, you know, what is a scientist? Most people think of you know, people in lab coats, you know, hanging out at the um, Hadron Collider, or think of the Big Bang Theory. And, and it's definitely a type of scientist, uh, as a matter of fact. But what we do is, is much more social scientists. For those other listening, um, you know, probably the, the terms of the field you know most often is you know, psychology or an anthropologist, sociologist, et cetera. And, and we're focused much more on kind of the psychosocial aspects of science um so it's not we're not sitting at a bench or in a lab with microscopes every day though i wish i had a microscope um we're we're much more concerned with people and the science of people and more specifically um the phenomenon and process of recovery you know our our field and our communities um there's been addiction scientists you know really since the probably the 20s and i think they're probably much more known you know if i said i was an addiction scientist people would probably have a pretty strong conception of what that is I mean, while that's an important field, right, you know, understanding how and why and how we treat addiction, you know, the, that we know it's a brain disorder that's you know, often earmarked by uh, chronic recurrence of abuse after treatment and all of these things is a really important 
concept and a really important part of the field, but it's just not what we study. So in addiction science where recovery is often just an outcome, right? It's, it's represented by percent days abstinence. How many times did you drink? Did you use drugs? All of these things, and it's, but it just kind of stays there. Like right? it's just an outcome of their field or topic of inquiry. For us, it's everything we do, everything we study is concerned with exploring and defining and characterizing that outcome. So rather than just recovery being the end result of any study we do, it's the starting place for every study that we do, and it allows us um, to ask questions like, "What is recovery for you know, the millions of people across the U.S.?" Um, how does it manifest in their lives? What does it look like over a long period of time? Are people different? Um, are, people, are people's recovery different? You know, if they engage in advocacy, what does that do for their recovery? Can it be part of it? Um, you know, does it take 12 months or 10 years for somebody to kind of be stable um, in the recovery process? Uh, and you know, I think the other really cool aspect of it, uh, because it's the hallmark of recovery science outside of just being the, the main framework for how we ask empirical questions, for us, and as we've established this field you know, on the shoulders of uh, researchers and activists like you know, Bill White and Dr. John Kelly at the Recovery Research Institute, you know, for our group, it, it really allows us to participate in research with the community. Uh, a staple and a paradigm for us is that we can't just be in, uh, scientists you know, in the ivory tower of the university asking these questions. We've got to be in the community working with and not just observing uh, people in recovery. So we, we call this process community-based participatory research, which really means every study we do, every research paper we put out, it's always in partnership at every stage with people with lived experience. Uh, for many of us that are recovery scientists, that means we're personally in recovery, like myself. Um, I'll actually celebrate six years in recovery tomorrow wow. on uh, May 7th. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, wow. it's exciting. So you're saying yeah, that uh, uh, a lot of the individuals you work with are all uh, within the, what do you call it? Uh, you're, you're like peer. Recovery. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it, there's a group of us that work within the Recovery Science Research Collaborative, the RSRC. And you guys are um, we're all up to about in 40 recovery? different. About 90%. Um, and I would say that other 10% that aren't personally in what we might conceptualize as a, a recovery pathway, they're family members of people in recovery, uh, or they've been impacted in some other way. I mean, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find uh, a lack of a direct connection to substance use disorders and mental health disorders and the recovery process of 100% of them. You know, but, but most of us actually have our own journey of engaging in that. So, so not only are we engaging with people that aren't researchers or scientists, helping to decide studies and ask questions and put out results. But many of us that are, you know, whether we're in PhD programs or we're already doctors and already well-established in the field, um, we're drawing upon that our own lived experience to inform um, the science that we engage in. And I think that's a, a big distinction, right? That it's probably a high degree of overlap in addiction science, which is the direct comparison of, of people in recovery that maybe go into that field. But I think for us in recovery science, um, it's just enmeshed in everything we do and I think as we look at whether it's community-based recovery advocacy or treatment services, whatever it might be, we always do better when people with lived experience are kind of guiding that ship. Um, so for us, that's, that's really how we kind of conceptualize and look at recovery science. So while this sounds absolutely amazing, I'm a little bummed out that you don't wear a lab coat. Just so a, a funny bit. story. And my wife, my wife feels the same way. 
Um, and she, she really likes me to play up the academic side um, in certain situations. So she, uh, I'm, I'm teaching an elective this fall that's called Recovery Informed Practice. And while it's not a lab coach, uh, for those of you that are, are familiar with kind of the prototypical academic, I have to, she's gotten me a cardigan <laughs> that has the leather elbow patches. Of course yes. it does. So I get is that. it plaid? It is. Yep. I knew it. It is plaid. And uh, uh, the second piece of that ensemble is a pipe. So not a pipe with tobacco. <laughs> I, I quit smoking years ago. It's but it's a pipe. pipe that blows bubbles. So. Of course it does. Of course it does. Um, so since this is a podcast. Not, qu- not quite a lab coat. No. Uh, since this is a podcast, the, the first thing I kind of wanted to talk to you about is RDSS, the Digital Recovery Support Services. Yeah, yeah, DRSS. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's it's really cool, and I think a podcast is a great uh, you know, kind of conceptualization of that, right? So we, we live in you know, the 21st century. We've got Facebook and other social media platforms like Twitter, you know, hashtag recovery movement. We've got smartphone applications. Um, you know, it's, so we see all of this, this technology being used for social good, like recovery. Um, you know, the She Recovers, we just published a paper on uh, about a, uh, maybe a month ago, you know, with 200,000 women, uh, probably much more so now, like all around the uh, world, international, you know, engaging with others uh, to talk about recovery, receive support, um, do yoga that's recorded and delivered via um, video. So all of these different things. And you know, if we imagine, uh, depending on how you may have entered recovery, right? You went to a, a treatment center in person, maybe you sure. went to a recovery residence, maybe you were lucky enough to have a collegiate recovery program or an RCO drop-in center around you. But like for, for many, especially those in rural areas or those that follow alternative pathways that aren't as prevalent, it'd be really hard to find your community. Um, and I think, you know, the digital recovery supports really allow us to say, we, you know, there is no boundaries. Geographic lines don't matter anymore. We're all one big recovery community and you can find your tribe no matter where you're at. As kind of leading to my next que- uh, question was, you know, does this uh, DRSS uh, potentially be utilized for more individualized service like chemical specific or gender, race, age specific uh, communities to form and whatnot? Yeah, I think that's a, you know, in, in our discussion section of one of the, actually that she recovers paper, and we just did a, a systematic review of kind of the current research availability on these digital supports. Um, we found, uh, I read, about, I read this paper. Uh, yeah, 4,000 abstracts and pared it down to about 22, 23 articles, if I remember correctly, that everything from Reddit forums that are anonymous to Facebook groups to smartphone apps, like I mentioned before. And one of the big takeaways, while most of the research has been on alcohol use disorder, um, like most research, it skews heavily uh, to participants that identify as male, all of which are are kind of uh, demographic problems because we need to look at diversity. But I think as we put forth, as we think about this, given the low cost uh, compared to in-person or in vivo supports, we can uplift these specialized, diverse communities that are inclusive that may, may be specific to certain substances or mental health versus substance use disorder or co-occurring or LGBTQ plus identifying individuals. You know, we, the, the sky is limitless. And because these can be propped up essentially when, you know, where any two people exist, as might be said in the, the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, it's the same online where two or three people exist and want to create a community on these free uh, platforms, then we can start to see them, them propped up. Um, and I think the technology today has gotten so either free or cheap, um, that really, you, you know, whether you're in Wisconsin or in Paris, 
you could do this and you could do it for you know, pennies on the dollar of what it might take to, to build a clubhouse or to build an in-person support. Um, so while the research maybe not there yet that says, you know, these, these diverse kind of specific uh, digital recovery supports are effective, what I do think is there and what I'm comfortable saying is that we know they can be created and they can be created quickly. Um, and I think we'll start to see an emergence of these over the next, you know, five, ten years um, whether it's specific Reddit forums, like there's already opioid one specifics now, or using Facebook platforms, or we'll see you know, a whole other platform um, that takes us by storm. Um, and I think as long as it has those features that it's freely available or very cheap um, and that you can create it you know, very quickly, uh, I think we'll, there's really a lot of opportunity there um, to create infrastructure and capacity that just hasn't been you know, pre-2000, just didn't exist. Do you think that uh, it will be met with opposition from certain organizations that demand anonymity? So I think it's possible, right? And I also think, you know, where uh, anonymity is a, a spiritual principle. And, you know, I, I went to uh, treatment in a 12-step facilitated type program, which is an affiliated with one specific fellowship. And I'm also a member of, of one of those fellowships. And I practice anonymity in certain areas, but I think for those of us that especially have engaged in advocacy, we understand kind of where those those guidelines or that line in the sand is of what it means to be anonymous. Um, and I think that's a very individual decision. So yeah, I, I don't see those entities or, or GSOs or World Service Organizations or other types of group conscious having an issue, especially, and I think this is the, the really key point, is that there is anonymous versions of these digital recovery support services. Specifically, Reddit comes to mind because everything can be anonymous. Yeah. You know, it, depending on the person, disclosing your identity um, is really about the only way you can be found out on Reddit. So I think if that's an issue, those platforms specific to those concerns or those paradigms or those traditions can absolutely be supported. Um, but I would say, you know, if we, if we know anything in 2019, is that more and more people are being very vocal and very transparent and very public about their recovery, which I think is a great thing. I agree. So I, I hope it's not an issue. Yeah. And, and there's probably opposition for everything, even if it doesn't need to be. And you can still be anonymous um, and share your story, right? So you can disclose that you yeah. are in recovery and like not have to disclose what pathway of recovery you've chosen. Yeah, there's a, I think just to that point, because maybe not everybody's seen it, but you know, the, Alcoholics Anonymous, their GSO put a letter out right around the time the anonymous people came out that essentially said, you know, if, if you want to, you can even go so far as to disclose that you, your pathway of recovery is a mutual aid fellowship that's one of the A's, but just not disclose which one. Exactly. And that was perfectly fine and in line with the group conscience. So I, I, it doesn't even have to, if you want to talk about pathway, I mean, most of the mutual aid anonymous fellowships operate with the same principles and and steps and activities. Um, and I think if, if you wanted to talk about that, because I do think people should, their identity should include which pathway, right? Because it, it lends some credibility and awareness and mm. traction um, rather than promotion. So I think going, just saying, you know what, I work in mutual aid anonymous fellowship and leaving it at that still doesn't break anonymity. Um, exactly. So I think that's important for people to know if they haven't seen that letter. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's beneficial for individuals to like be completely engulfed in recovery? Like, through these apps and going to meetings and participating in recovery-based musicals (laughs) or like say in the future somebody (laughs) may uh, start a recovery television network, uh, like making your whole existence. Or even like what is the research around, you know, what are in terms of your recovery capital, what are the things that really keep people engaged in long-term recovery? And if it's, it's healthy. 
in my opinion, to be that encompassed in recovery where it's like everything. Sure. So I, yeah. And I think there's a lot to unpack there, right? And maybe we can, we'll, we'll put a pen, but we have to come back to the recovery musicals because I know uh, <laughs> somebody on the podcast absolutely loves those. Um, I'm pretty sure one of us was I, in one. <laughs> multiple, right? Yes. <laughs> um. You know, so I, I think there's a lot to unpack in that question, right? So, I mean, maybe we'll go piece by piece. Um, so I think the the first, you know, is it at the individual level, everybody's different. You know, if, if research can tell us anything, and I like I, this almost sounds like a cop-out, but, you know, some things work for certain people at certain times, and we don't really know much more than that, right? Like, it's, it's almost we're using empirical evidence to give us kind of in aggregates or on average, this tends to work this type of person that has these characteristics and these conditions. Um, but that's not a given, right? We have nothing, uh, we can't go with 100% certainty, no matter how much evidence we have. And I think it's important to know that. And so no matter what you know, gets said for the rest of, of this question, right, it's, it is an individual decision and everybody is different. But I think if you want to wear your uh, stand up for recovery hoodie with your recovery beanie and your recovery shoelaces and your recovery socks, um, and your recovery eye watch face, like whatever it is that you want to do. If you want to be Mr. Recovery, like have at it. Because at the end of the day, if somebody decides this is what's best for me, nobody can really tell them differently. And then there's a big asterisk there, right? Like, so, sure. so what do we know from the research? And I, we just, we published a paper a few months ago, specifically on advocacy, because I think this is where it gets kind of brought up the most where, you know, is advocacy a, helpful part of recovery can it kind of boost recovery capital or is it harmful um and most people that engage in recovery related activism do tend to hold on to a very very strong recovery identity and it, it permeates multiple factors of their life and i think that's probably the of a sample or an individual getting closer to the question who really models or, or captures recovery in every element of their identity it's that activist um it's probably the closest to it and essentially what we found in this pilot study is that for people that engage in advocacy, there's a tremendous amount of possible benefit from things like learning soft skills, how to tell your story, how to work in professional settings, um, how to network, uh, how to develop uh, event planning skills. Um, and there's also these interpersonal benefits. So it allows people to develop a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging, this idea of fellowship that we get in other recovery programs. So in and of itself, I think there's a lot of positive aspects to being more immersed in the recovery process. And if we, we play that out or pull that string, if, if a recurrence of use did happen or a recurrence of symptoms, if you're on the mental health side, which isn't a failure, right? It, it's, it does tend to happen, though it doesn't, it's not always part of recovery. If it does, if you are immersed, you know, the chances of getting reengaged, having that supportive network around you at all possible touch points, I think is a good thing. But, but that doesn't mean there's not potential harms. And I think there's two distinct possibilities. Um, and I think it's something we need to be aware of as, as people in recovery as we get more involved. Um, one is, is we do tend to have narcissistic tendencies as part of our um, personality or part of our mental health, which goes along with things like ego and representation, um, you know, being Mr. Recovery individually for your own self-worth and, and self-care is a good thing. Being Mr. Recovery to get a paycheck or to have more followers, like all those things, and, and this, not to say that anybody does this, but that's, if the motive, if the intent is harmful or nefarious, then the outcome to the individual could be harmful and nefarious. And I think the other aspect of that is, is we 
um, at least from this study, we identified another potential harm is to the larger community at, at kind of writ large. You know, we're an emerging community, um, at least publicly in the, in the public sphere, due, due to all stigma and discrimination and oppression of and you know, distrust of people that use drugs or people that have mental health disorders, that any misstep, especially from somebody that's very publicly in recovery, can cause harm to the greater community, uh, which in our current political climate and, and all the policy and advocacy we all do, that can be. Um, it can harm future people. If there's less money for services, if there's more discriminatory policy because we couldn't get something passed, um, that all hurts the person coming up after us, whether they're seeking treatment or seeking recovery through a, a non-traditional methods. Um, and I think it's important that we consider that. So I think all of that kind of wraps up. The biggest takeaways is one, everybody's different. What works for some may not work for others. And I think people need to make the individual decision is what is my motivation? Um, because there's just as a statement, people being enmeshed in recovery in all aspects of their lives is not harmful in and of itself. Mm -hmm. um, the intent and motivation matters more. I completely agree. And I think that permeates into not just recovery, but your whole life. Yeah, absolutely. It's hard not to, um, when you do work in advocacy or you, you know, are engaged in a 12 step community, it's hard to not make it your entire life because your support system and, you know, you build this family inside recovery and it's, you know, it's a big portion of how we live our lives. For I, sure. I, what I think you're talking about is, is how genuine are you and what you're doing, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, I think if we if we parse it out, right, like recovery is a word and it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But if we really you know, kind of drill down, it's just wellness. And I think we would be hard pressed to find anybody, whether that's sports, whether that's gaming, whether that's connecting with others and individuals and family members, whether it's reading a book, um, whether it's you have an identity as a, uh, a community organizer for um, disenfranchised communities, not dealing with addiction, like whatever it is, like if your identity is a a big part of who you are and gives you purpose. Like we're just talking about wellness. So sure. I think if we pull the recovery terminology out of it, right? Like you'd be hard pressed to find somebody that doesn't, wouldn't say whatever I need to do to be well is something that I'm going to love and cherish and, and uplift and do as much as I can. And I think well, sometimes we displace people in recovery kind of at this, these odds against themselves, given our history and our symptoms of the disease and all these things we deal with. That maybe it shouldn't be a, a complete part of their life, or um, but it's, it's it is their life. I mean, right. for those people in recovery, you know that that's such a huge part of your identity. It's not a hundred percent of your identity, and for others, it's not their identity at all. And either either of those is okay. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it's just wellness. Um, and I think that's how we should look at it because we don't place place other people trying to be well, maybe at the same standards we might somebody in recovery. Right. Do you think that? Um, for people who don't necessarily identify as having a specific pathway to recovery ha um, are part of your are, are, are part of your data points? I mean, or how do you collect data on people who don't identify? So we've, we've done this a, a couple different ways. And you know, I, I think for many people that may have heard a number, it's, it's in the millions, right? We've, we've been saying it for decades that there's 23 million people, uh, Americans, living in recovery, about 10%. And that's, that was from a study uh, with Oasis out of New York and, and Faces and Voices of Recovery. It's a great talking point, right? Um, that study was replicated in a more academic sense with, with more rigorous methods uh, by Dr. John Kelly and Dr. Bergman and, and Dr. Phil Faint and some others at the Recovery Research Institute in 2017. And they essentially found the same thing, right? But it, it's much more nuanced than just saying there's 23 million Americans in recovery. What we actually know is that there's about 22 million Americans that have resolved an alcohol and other drug issue. 
about half of those, just under 11 million or so, actually identify as a person in recovery. So we have we have another 11 million that had a substance use disorder of varying severity that just resolved that and don't actually have that identity. And it's probably the first really good look um, at a quote-unquote recovering population, a problem resolution population that doesn't hold a recovery identity and how that looks for them. You know, did they naturally recover? Did they go to treatment? What does their you know, day-to-day life look like? How do they feel about medication? Um, what's their criminal justice uh, involvement in their lifetime? Um, so it's, it's epidemiologically or, or from a population perspective, it was a re- really the first kind of close look at, at some of the differences and similarities. Um, but I, I think it's, you know, as we look at and define recovery, um, which I think most importantly is an individual concept that's self-defined dependent on pathway and support services and what works for the individual at a very broad level, like we should be as inclusive as possible. You know, if somebody is seeking wellness, um, no matter what pathway or support service, um, if they want to identify as, as I am a person in recovery, then I think they should be able to, uh, as long as they're overcoming um, some type of substance use disorder or mental health disorder, and then we can parse down what does that look like, because um, it just provides us much more nuance uh, or diversity within research to get to your question is that, you know, in terms of data points, we want a biggest bucket of possible, and then drill down to do specific studies on, on very specific characteristics of people. And the way we do that is by broadening the scope, um, which I don't think everybody's a fan of, right? Like people think that it's watering down what recovery means and all this, but from a science perspective, the closest or closer we can get to being able to predict what services work for some people, how they begin to form their identities, um, what pathways uh, they might prescribe to or, or be most beneficial to them in the future, closer we can get to actually predicting recovery success and making referrals, not just based on on what's in the community, but what's most likely to promote success and wellness for that individual. And we're seeing that in Las Vegas and Nevada, and probably on a national standpoint too, is that um, our state solution has really been medication-assisted treatment. And when we talk about medication-assisted recovery, people's kind of eyes bug out of their heads because they're just not familiar with what that means. Are you doing a lot of studies around medication-assisted recovery and how that's impacting people's long-term recovery status and that sort of thing? Yeah, so a lot of our work in that area is is around stigma and bias, um, you know, which really exists or is exerted on in two fronts. One is from you know, the general public, which which every person with a substance use disorder or or just people who use drugs generally have a certain level of latent and explicit, implicit bias and stigma that is associated to them by the general public and policymakers and criminal justice professionals and other types of social service professionals. But then specific to um, substance use disorder pharmacotherapy and assisted recovery that somebody that may identify with that pathway, they also have this kind of stigma and bias. Um, I think you said people's eyes bug out when you mentioned it, and that's what we're talking about. It's kind of type of lateral violence within the recovery community where maybe we pay lip service to the idea that multiple pathways should be respected and uplifted, and I think a lot of people do. But when we get down to this implicit and perhaps explicit bias, we, we see people's true colors uh, to originate over the last couple of decades as medication assisted recovery has become more prominent with you know opioid treatment programs and office-based opioid treatment services kind of cropping up with uh, all the different funding streams from the feds and opioid use disorder prevalence and the overdose crisis and all these different things i, I think people had to make some decisions right and, and it was easy to support multiple pathways maybe when we weren't in the midst of a, a widespread uh, increased capacity of, of medication use to now where they actually have to make decisions like, do I support this or not? And I, I think by and large, at least what we're seeing 
in some of these pilot studies and some of the other researchers um, publishing at work is that there's a high level of stigma internally and externally in the general public. But at the end of the day, right, it's, so we talk about prevalence, which I think matters, is most people in recovery and most people with a substance use disorder have still never used medication to treat or support and maintain that recovery. So it's less than 10% of the entire problem-resolving or recovering population in the United States. And just from a treatment engagement perspective, if we look at the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, it's less than like 7% actually accessed opioid use disorder pharmacotherapy in the community in the last year. What, so we're not, you know, this, this, this idea that it's everywhere is, is not necessarily true. What's the difference between uh, pharmacotherapy and uh, medically assisted treatment? So there's not. Um, uh, it, it's a linguistic switch or a label switch, if you will. That's what so I a lot of our research, um, yeah, specifically on stigma and bias and discrimination, has been around language. Um, some, about six studies that we've put out over the last two years have focused and honed in on and expanded on some of the previous work. Uh, both of you or many of you uh, listening have probably taken a, a recovery messaging training at some point through your local RCO um, or through Facing the Voices of Recovery or online, wherever. Um, and it's, we really wanted to get an empirical backing for stigmatizing language. So uh, amongst I, the different words we tested... Uh, I have a lot of questions on language, but I kind of want to get to them later in the interview because I think it's going to take a big chunk of the rest of the episode. I kind of got some other questions, if you if you don't mind, that I'd like to touch on before we get into language. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so I, I, I really like the, the definition you, you had online for recovery, which is the individualized, intentional, dynamic, and relational process of involving sustained efforts to improve wellness. Um it kind of covers like a lot of stuff there. Uh, how did you come up with that? So that was one of the first uh, things we did at the Recovery Science Research Collaborative in December of 2017. We all met at Kennesaw State University in Georgia for the first time. Um, and as we started to think about you know, what could we contribute to the field, how can we begin to uh, really increased the amount of recovery-related research and science that was coming out. Uh, we, we kept coming up against this question is, if we're going to do this, what is the framework? What is the, the definition of recovery that we're going to use as a field to really operationalize that process or phenomena uh, to make sure that we're all talking about the same thing and all measuring and studying the same kind of construct? So that was, that was the goal. And we started by reviewing, you know, there's, there's been a, a lack of consensus within what the definition of recovery is and whether you're talking about mental health or substance use disorders. Um, there's been just about 16 definitions, I believe, over about the last 20 <laughs> years, everywhere from SAMHSA, which everyone knows about, uh, to the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation. And they all, they're all a little similar, and there's, a, there's some big differences between those. And, and some of the bigger differences, and I think the sake of conversation, is whether or not recovery requires abstinence um, was really kind of the biggest variance between those. And you know, for our purposes, uh, SAMHSA, their working definition of recovery uh, from 2011 was the closest to what we wanted, but it didn't capture some of the specific kind of science-y elements, which I promise you is a real word. Uh, <laughs> I, I swear. I use science all the time. If not, I'm pointing it now. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I used it today. Um, it's, I mean, it, it is it is one of the great words. I think Merriam-Webster needs to add it to the dictionary. But you know, as we thought about that, it's you know, what do we need to know? What do we believe from our lived experience and the work we've already done that is a hallmark 
of what's happening when recovery exists or is happening out in the in the person's life. And it, it captured some of those things that, that are in those def, that definition, right? That it's dynamic, which means that it changes over time. Yeah. So if you're like me, maybe you went to treatment, you worked a 12 step program for a couple of years and, and my recovery has changed dramatically since you know, I went to grad school, got married, had a kid. Um, and what that looks like today is a whole lot of yoga yeah. and meditation and mindfulness. Um, and I haven't been to a 12 step meeting in, in probably two years. So it's dynamic, right? It, it doesn't stay stagnant. Um, and that may mean, a whole number of things, but I think at the core, it's just that it can and should and often does change for the individual over a period of time. The, the part that uh... we have these, <laughs> I, I mean, just to, to hit some of the, like to not go to each one, but I think so that's a big characteristic. The other that wasn't really captured in some of these other things was the interpersonal well, that, that, uh, or relational kind of, aspect. That was literally my next question is that's the, that's the part that, that gets me. And I'm, I'm kind of, I, I would like to know, like, so first of all, substance use disorder is, is like an in, interpersonal disease with an interpersonal solution. And I kind of want to know like the science behind the need for personal connection in the recovery process. Like what's happening scientifically. Because that's not usually a remedy for a lot of things, uh, being close to somebody or, or, no, no, or being I, I represented. Think, I think we're learning. Yeah, I think we're starting to see, even in, in general medicine, we are starting to see the... Uh, the benefits of this, because if we're talking about a solution out in the real world, you know, what does a relational uh, component of recovery or healthcare or other types of service delivery and diseases, what does it really represent? And it's social determinants of health, at least parts of them, right? So we're, we're talking about two different aspects of relationships. So it's both, both the relationship to self, right? So within substance use disorder, how we often think of that is, um, you know, things like sense of purpose and self-esteem and self-efficacy. Um, how do we begin to capture how I view myself, what my identity is and, and how I continue to grow? Because if you don't like yourself very much, then your recovery is either probably not doing too great. And, and not that it, it can't be successful, but it's not what we begin to consider a healthy relationship with oneself. And I think that the most people would understand that as a very strong component of addiction and even mental health. And, and I would say other diseases as well that have an identity associated with them, but that, that kind of misses out. And I think that one's talked about a, a lot, but the reason that we said relational is because we have a whole other range of relationships in our lives, right? Whether that's a relationship with our families, whether it's our relationship with our community, whether it's a relationship with the government, whether it's a relationship with, with whoever, it's not just an interpersonal relationship, but it's an intrapersonal relationship. And I think that's for recovery. We begin to see really important changes happen within that process as people get connected to community or others. So as, a, as someone's relationship grows and expands and becomes well with yourself, it tends to become grow and become well with others. But I think in you know, recovery capital was mentioned earlier and we've, we've, begun to identify this concept or construct of community recovery capital. Um, and it's based off an ecosystems model. So the, the more somebody is connected to their community and the more that community is supportive of recovery and supportive of, of healthy and, and expanding relationships, the more likely somebody is to have higher individual recovery capital and more likely to sustain their recovery. So I, I think when we, we have to expand our way of thinking around relationships, is that it's, it's not just our immediate relationships, whether that's with self or with our direct peers and family. It's our relationship to everything. Um, and I think if people really begin to think about their own personal recovery and, and what has changed in all of their relationships, there would be a whole lot of things people could identify. And that's what we're 
worried about, right? Is, is what are those changes that over time look like from a relationship basis? Because if we go back to where we started this this uh, talk, right, is, is recovery science is concerned with the process rather than just the outcome. We want to know what over time, what is changing on a dynamic basis amongst relationships and intents and motivation um, and, and all of those different things that can improve wellness. And I, I, um, I think oh. if we think about social determinants of recovery, uh, it becomes to become much clearer how other medicine fields uh, apply as well. What's a piece of research you have found in your career that you feel as though completely changed the game for recovery? Everything written by Bill White. <laughs> I, uh, when I first decided that I, I wanted to become a quote-unquote recovery scientist, and, and I didn't call it that then, right? There was a, I was an undergrad at the University of North Texas at the, in social work and psychology um, was at the collegiate recovery program there, which was a godsend in a lot of different ways. But, you know, Bill had, I came across one of his pieces of writing and, you know, one of the many presentations and, and he talked about this idea of a researcher activist, right? And it was really what we have come to define as recovery scientists today. It's that these, that individuals lived experience as they continue growing in their education and in their skill sets, there's going to be a need. And he put out this call that if you're a person with lived experience, that you need, to, you, you have to become a researcher activist. It's not enough to be just a scientist. It's not enough to just be an activist, but it's, it's what you need to do is become an activist that's informed empirically by the research we do. And I think for many of us, myself included, um, that was kind of the seminal piece uh, that Bill wrote that, that we, we heard, right? And it, it was the call that led us to getting PhDs and, and continuing our education and, and now you know, trying to curate and develop and cultivate this field of recovery science um, based on his work and writing. Um, I kind of want to go back to something you touched on earlier when you were talking about uh, participating in service. Um, since you were a scientist, I, I, I kind of want to know what maybe the biological benefits of identifying or identifying something in, a, in somebody else or learning that empathy. Like, what, how does that change in, in somebody? So that's, I, I can speak generally to it, and I think um, you definitely should have a neuroscientist on um, that is probably more of the hard scientist. I, uh, I, about, I, have I can't one say soon. what we know about. <laughs> and I, I think that's the person to ask, because there is, there is definitely some formative biological changes. I, I think from a kind of relational or, or social-ecological perspective, well, I'll, I'll, know, I'll ask empathy a, and sympathy are very... I'll ask a different question then. Um, so you, obviously you're a man of science, right? And there's a, mm -hmm. there's a lot of faith and surrender involved in recovery. I would like to know your thoughts on like the higher power aspect of, of recovery being a man of science. Sure. So I, I identify and, and have grown up um, as a Christian. I, I still wear a crucifix uh, around my neck. And I think you know, where I stand is, is just like other programs and pathways and support services within recovery or other chronic diseases, basically a big role in that, but I think it is an individual process. By no means do I think it is necessary. Um, and I don't even think it's necessary for every person to surrender or to have faith in a higher power to recover. Um, and I think the, the evidence parses that out and, and kind of proves our point. And most people naturally remit, you know, they, they quote unquote naturally recover without any type of supportive service, which has nothing to do with surrender or faith in a higher power. Um, I, I know from my 
personal process than many others. Like it's absolutely a, a huge component of that and, and much more so early on and it still remains to this day. Um, so I think at the individual level, right, if, if it is something that is important to you, if faith is or was, if there's a whole lot of, of trauma or baggage. Um, it's it's, quote, it's quote, not quote, mandatory is what you're saying. No, I, I think it's mandatory if it needs to be therapeutically. And I think the only time it should be mandatory, we should even consider that we would call it that, is if there is something that needs to be worked there, worked through in the past, whether the, whether you call that a resentment or trauma or an adverse experience, mm-hmm. there's something there that you're holding on to with your faith or with organized religion. I think that needs to be worked through. And I, but I think that's the only time it should be mandatory. Otherwise, it's, it's a self-directed and subjective support that an individual should choose if it's an important part of their identity. So when you're analyzing this data or even collecting this data, I mean, how long does it take for you to, um, you know, come up with this evidence essentially? Is it years? I mean, is it months? Like how do you, do you borrow from other, um, like other sources, other sources that may have done other, uh, studies or experiments that weren't maybe as related to recovery? but maybe have information? So yeah, so there's a, there's a couple different pieces to the scientific method, right? And we'll, we'll take it old school, what everybody learned in, <laughs> in elementary, hopefully, unless you're in a common core state, and then you probably have no idea what I'm talking about, but don't worry, <laughs> we'll go through it. Um, so I think you know, from the scientific method, right? So we're, we're identifying some type of construct or topic that we're interested in. We review previous evidence or whether that's our anecdotal experience, meaning our lived experience, or evidence from the scientific literature. And then we're going to form a question, right? So what is the most pressing question that we have? And and there's tons of them, but we form that research question. Here's what we want to know. And then we're going to develop hypotheses, uh, either a hypothesis or a set of hypotheses, and then go through the experimental uh, method to answer and and try to, to get either a correlation or a causal inference about that hypothesis. Can we say it's true or is it false? Um, and then we essentially develop that and base a theory develops based on that research. And then we just do it all over again, right? It's a never ending process. But what this looks like in the, the real world on a day to day, it varies. So it depends on a number of, of things like sample size, the scope of the question, how complicated it is. Has it been published on 20 or 30 times before? Is it in our sense in recovery science, most things have never been published on. So we're, we're dealing with, we are pulling a lot from other uh, scientific um, evidence and research and previous studies to inform our literature review, which is kind of the introduction section of any paper. Um, But depending on all of those different things, most of our research can last anywhere from 60 days to we have one study that's longitudinal that'll be going on for four years and then probably take a year to analyze the data just because there's so much more. Um, And then within, I think to to your question, Chris, um, we don't really, we can't pull data and analyze it in a different way and then try to apply it um, you know, to our sample or combined samples. I mean, there are some statistical ways to do that, but really the only thing is that there's a data set that somebody asks one research question on, but we're like, hey, you have this sample, you answered this question, but we have this other question. So maybe it's, it's Medicare data and we want to look at how many times they went to treatment if you're that's pretty between much the ages of 18 and 25 and Caucasian. Um, so that's, we call that secondary kind of, analysis. Yeah. Yeah, so we, we do a range of both. Um, so most of our research is novel and original, where we're collecting data with pilot samples or experimental uh, randomized samples that are representative, um, and then going through the whole process. So on average, I would say from the moment that we have the question or the thought to the time we publish can be anywhere from six months to two years, average. 
So I'd love to start talking about some language stuff. So as we know, and, you know, I, I also work for a recovery community organization and, you know, I do these um, recovery messaging trainings, as you've mentioned, um, and we see that it is a huge area that you personally have done research in. Um, what is the science behind language that truly contributes or reduces stigma? And I know that's such a broad question, a, right? <laughs> right? It is. And the, the latter part of it is like the real big part of that question. How do we reduce stigma? So we'll, we'll come back to that. So it, broadly, because um, we don't have enough time to go through like the, the specifics of each study, we've, we've done a range of studies with a um, very large sample, about 1,400 people over the last two years, which we've published about six different papers on that extended some research that had been done previously from Bill White and John Kelly um, and Colleen Berry from John Hopkins and Elizabeth McGinty and, and some others that essentially said what the recovery community has been saying for a really long time, at least those that are in the activist space, that maybe, just maybe, it's not a good idea to label people with derogatory terms like addict or alcoholic or substance abuser or junkie or crackhead or all of these other ones, right? And it's the only time you may hear me say those in a public setting. But to set the stage, like those words don't necessarily feel good when others label us with them. That doesn't mean that when we use them on ourselves, especially in a, a program of recovery, that maybe they have some type of cathartic benefits or serve some purpose. But nobody likes being called those things from people they don't know. I, I completely so agree. To, I'm, I'm curious because yeah, you, you said a lot of words like addict and junkie. And, 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 and my question is, is, do you think the word addict itself is, is in the same category is like say the word junkie i would yes i think they're both awful words that we should completely strike from the english language personally right and i've I've been labeled all of those things i'm just Um, yeah i don't don't think one is better than the other i'm just curious why the specific word addict is such a in my opinion um let's take the word obese right um you call somebody obese it's not it's not nice but it is a somewhat sciencey word uh I, I kind of feel the same way about the word addict. It, it's not fun to hear that word, but it is somewhat a technical term. You are, if people are addicted to things. So I think there's a difference between having an addiction, right? Which I, I'm still not completely fond of that word, um, right. which maybe we can talk about. But when, when we're labeling people as a thing, right? When we, we say you are an addict, we're not, that is not clinical, right? Like we're not saying this is a, we mean that it's a person with an addiction, but really what we mean, if we look linguistically at the word and what it's come to mean, we mean all of the stereotypes that come with that. So when we say you're an addict, you have a problem with drugs, you're probably a criminal, maybe you're experiencing homelessness, uh, you're untrustworthy, you have no morals, you did this to yourself. Like these are all the stereotypes. When you say that word, for most people that are not in recovery or who use drugs and have a substance use disorder, that's what that word means. That is the generalization that the general public, healthcare practitioners, and many others think about and place on people that are labeled with that term. What they don't think is, hey, this is a person with a substance use disorder that needs medical treatment. But- so where I think when, when people say obese, um, because it is the clinical term, that may be a little different, but addict is not a clinical term. It's not a diagnosis. Um, Fair enough. It's, it's not going to be in an EHR. And I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a, what we, we, like a hypothetical question. Say, say the word addict did, didn't exist, right? And the first thing somebody came up to describe somebody with this with a substance use disorder was the word substance use disorder. And over time, that that term gathered the same stigmatization as the word addict has now. Do you think that they would be advocating to change that language as well? 
to something different? Yeah, I think we have to follow from the evidence, right? So if in in this hypothetical uh, situation, a person with a substance use disorder had the same negative stereotypes placed on it that um, addict or substance abuser does, I think we should advocate for that change. Because even what we know now is that a person with a substance use disorder is not inherently positive. It's just less negative. And linguistics change every time. It's the only constant, or it's one of many constants, but it is a constant in in the real world, right, that Way it words and their meaning and their connotations and their stereotypes change, and it's something we should be vigilant about. I think you know because this 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 criticism, I think not criticism, but this question comes up all the time. Like, what happens when this word means the same thing as addict to the general public? But I think the difference is is that we have a vocal recovery community and we have changing opinions of addiction and substance use disorders and mental health that we are pushing back against negative stereotypes. And at the same time, really, what we're advocating for with language change is let's get people the best setting right now with positive language that as they're pushing negative stereotypes back, they actually aren't being stigmatized at the same time. So I think it's a uh, a combination of all of these interventions at the same time, which matter, which hopefully will mean that substance use disorder never has those negative stereotypes. Um, And again, this is kind of me. I I personally agree with you. Uh, But again, I'm I'm kind of playing devil's devil's advocate for listeners and whatnot, but I'm curious... Do you think uh, negative reinforcement has its place, though, in 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 the world? No, I don't. Um, and we've we've had multiple I conversations, especially on Twitter. Um, yeah, I, so I, I think if we look at stigma reduction campaigns, negative reinforcements from a I'm not saying perspective all the time, have, but on some occasions. But I I think the science bears out, at least in substance use, the negative reinforcement, uh, tough love, all of those things, they may be effective for the individual, but they are not effective in that. Um, And I think they do a lot more harm than good. Yeah, Uh, it creates more shame and then it creates um, more barriers for people defining recovery. Fair enough. I I feel like I still have to ask the question. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No, I think it's a fair question and I think it needs to be discussed, right? But I I think to Chelsea's point... um, we have a shame-based disease that there's high levels of internalized stigma and shame. Stigma is the number one reason people don't seek out treatment in the United States, something like 39.7% if you look at NISA data. Any opportunity we can get to positively reinforce and at the same time destigmatize is going to be the strategy, I think, that pays the highest dividends. Um, people who use drugs and, and people who are in recovery, people who have substance use disorders, have so much shame already. Uh, right. The negative reinforcement is only going to to put them at a disadvantage. Right, right. So, Robert, I've met you in person. You're a really, really cool man. And one of the coolest things that I loved about you was that when you, um, you know, were, were doing your talk on recovery language, um, I couldn't help but love that you are a scientist with tattoos all over your body. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you and, I do have them everywhere <laughs> yes you do and you know I I relate but um what has been the best way to combat the stigma in itself um with tattoos and you know being a researcher and being an advocate because sometimes we see that you know older generations don't take people with tattoos seriously or have their own stigma around tattoos like what's something that you use to combat that stigma for that specific topic Sure. So I think I wear a lot of suits, right? And I always think it, it provides this nice dichotomy between 
hey, this guy maybe used to be a little street, but now he's in a suit. Maybe we should listen to what he has to say. And that, and that tends to work kind of well. But I think the real uh, strategy here is just time, um, right? So I think we'd be hard-pressed to find most people, and, and the older generation is definitely less so, that don't have at least one tattoo now. And I, I think the world has changed due mainly to the passage of time and the prevalence of people with tattoos that we're beginning to realize that the, the worth of a person is not tied to what they look like or what's on their skin or the clothes that they wear, but really the work um, they do, the size of their compassion and their heart and their empathy. And I think for me, as I've gotten older um, and still do have to deal with this, especially from older generations, especially those in corporate settings, um, is that if I can get a foot in the door, right, and, and my CV and my experience and the work I've done often allows that to happen, is that I allow my work to speak for itself. You know, I have a, a criminal justice fact or a record. Uh, I'm in recovery, right? I have a substance use disorder, use, you know, copious amounts of, of drugs in my lifetime, and I'm covered in tattoos, including brass knuckles on my neck. Right. Um, but I find that once once those walls are down, once they hear me speak or once they, they, we have an interaction, that most of the time people soften up. Um, and I think that it's kind of like the recovery community, right? The more often that we're vocal and faces and voices of recovery, the more likely people are to think of just a bit differently. And I think it's the same exactly with tattoos. Absolutely. I found the same things. So I, I mean, I have a million more questions and, you know, unfortunately we don't have too much more time, but one last question that I had for you, um, you know, we do know that you have quite the resume. Um, before you found recovery, this was not necessarily the career path that you had chose. Uh, what advice or words would you give to people who may be listening that want to get into this work, want to get into this field, um, that maybe don't want to work in treatment, but, you know, this could be a solution for them. This could be a career path for them. Yeah, I think, you know, I'll use the words of, of Bill White, right, that education is transformative. Recovery is transformative. And if you, you are persistent across this pathway, you know, the, the sky is truly the limit. When we think about the recovery process and the grit and determination um, that it takes to successful, successfully recovery in this life, that's the same skill set that you need to be successful in life. So if somebody wants to get involved, um, I think they need to take a good hard look and ask themselves what their motivation is. If it's about anything other than giving back to the community um, and trying to change the world, whether that means burning it down, like a radical social worker or becoming a recovery scientist and asking the empirical questions, the motivation is key and it has to be about giving back to your community. And I think it'd be, if you decide that that motivation is right, um, just start the process, right? I was 25 when I went to treatment um, and went back to undergrad to start my second career. I was actually in radio before that, you know, completely you uh, divergent from what I do now. I was, I was a director of operations for a seven station radio network in Texas before I got sober, cool. um, which I enjoyed a lot, right? It, 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 but it was really conducive to drinking and making uh, deals and all that. So it wasn't exactly healthy for me. But you know, a, a radio guy becoming a researcher um, you know, wasn't in the cards until after. But I think you know, if we know anything, it's that recovery makes the impossible or the unlikely possible. So I, I think you know, believing in, in yourself is the first step. I love it. I have one last thing. Uh, do you mind t- saying what uh, or the unityrecovery.org is? Yeah, we want to hear about your new organization. Yeah, yeah so we you know, we do a lot, right? And we um, we found homes in, in multiple cities across the country, um, but Philly has, has definitely been where we're planting some roots. Um, and my wife and I, she's got 10 years. I'm about to celebrate six, as we talked about before. 
Um, and we do all this research on recovery community organizations and other support institutions. And as I also mentioned, yoga has been a big part of our recovery. So we've had this dream of what it would look like to get back to the community. So we found some commercial space after two years of looking in Philly. And we're actually, we got two floors in Maniunk, which is right outside of kind of downtown Philly, uh, a vinyasa yoga studio that's trauma-informed and recovery-centric will be on the second floor. And then a drop-in recovery center will be on the third floor. And that's what, what Unity Recovery is. And I, you know, if we look at how we make a difference, uh, we made a commitment that it was always going to be free. There would never be a single charge for an individual that wanted to access peer recovery coaching or group meetings um, or recovery yoga. Uh, so we've, we've worked really hard to find a great board of directors and do a lot of work. Um, so we actually opened in August, which is super exciting. That is exciting. Um, and if people want to learn more, yeah, you know, we actually based the model off one of our papers on uh, Mo Network in Missouri. So it's a hybrid RCO. So it's actually the combination of peer-based recovery support services um, and harm reduction services nice. under one roof. Because uh, inclusivity is critical to our mission and, so and me as a person. So. Mm-hmm. so listeners go to unityrecovery.org and thank you. Yes. For thank you on. so much. Is there anything else? Um, any other plugs you want um, people to follow you on or anything else? Yeah. Yeah. I think if, if people want to hear more about our work, you can definitely follow me on Twitter at RD Ashford. And I think the, the last call to action I would give to all of you is, is obviously subscribe to this podcast because what else are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> you're sweet. And where, wherever you're at in the, in the country, right, or in the world, um, wherever you're at today is find your local recovery community organization or your statewide advocacy network and get plugged in. Because the only way that we make this world a better place for people that are in recovery is for every single person to do the next right thing. And that's just getting involved and lending your voice to this movement because we need you. And everybody else that's coming after us needs you too. So what are you waiting for? I I completely agree. Thank you so much, Robert. You're amazing. I would love to talk to you again on more specific things on a later date. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm I'm happy to... um, I would love to... Hopefully we'll meet in person when I'm in Nevada the next time. But um, yeah, anytime. I would love to debate language with you later. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. We, we, uh, that has, I feel like I get in a debate about language about every week. Um, most often, do you on Twitter, really? But I'm always happy to, well, yeah, so we, I mean, we're not recording anymore, correct? Yeah, we are. I'll, I'll turn, yeah, it, off. turn it off. We can turn it off. Uh, well, so thank you, <laughs> listeners, and later. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Listen on all the major streaming platforms, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher. Give us a rating on that iTunes, Apple Podcast thing. We uh, need them. Follow us on social media at Recover Everything. Go to our website, recovereverything.com to tell us a story, uh, reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you.